Um, please have your Bibles open there at John 18. And let's pray. Father God, we have been celebrating your love and your goodness. We have recognized that it's your love for us and your, your work in our lives is, is full. It's not about only the good moments and the moments when the sun shines, but that it's a, about all of life. And Lord, even as we come to your word, help us not to come looking for uh, some spiritual fix for the week, a, a bitter or a sweet, a sweet tablet to, to help us. Help us instead to look for fullness of life. Help us to look for the truth that sets us free. Help us to find in your word, Jesus, the word who is made flesh. And as we encounter him, to be changed in the moment. Amen. Over the last nine and a half years, um, I've walked to church most Sundays. I I would miss the odd one um, if the weather was particularly bad or if I was bringing a a prop to show the children that was uh, just too much to carry. Um, But mostly walk up and down the road. And... As I've done that, I've been observing what I call the Sunday morning rush hour. So that's, uh, on the weekdays, there's a rush hour where people are going out to their workplaces. And on a Sunday morning in Belfast, there's still a discernible moment when there's a wee bit of extra traffic on the road as people are on their way to, to Sunday worship. I sometimes wonder, when I'm walking along, whether we Christians don't just seem very smug. Uh, to other people as they observe us in the Sunday morning rush hour on our way to worship. I'm not sure that what I'm talking about here is quite as evident as it would have been in the old days. In the old days, uh, it might have been more obvious that a person was on their way to church uh, from the way in which people dressed, for example. So you'd have seen masses of people uh, very well-dressed heading out to church uh, maybe maybe some of them had quite somber faces that, that felt like it was a Sunday. I'm on my way to church. Um, it, it all needs to look very uh, serious. The men were in their suits, the women in their dresses and, and maybe hats. Um, the children were dressed like something out of a Victorian period drama. Um, I know because I was one of them. Um, and we must have seemed like a breed apart And I'm guessing that people looking on might have thought, these people, they, they're either better than us or, or they think they're better than us. There's something about a sense of moral superiority that, that these people give off. Of course, we can't do a lot about that, any sense of public perception. Uh, if people choose to view us in a certain light, that's fair enough and we, we have to live with that. But I don't want to move on from that idea just yet of Christian smugness or moral superiority. What if 
it's more than just a perception in the mind of our neighbors. What if it's actually true? What if we come to church imagining that we're somehow better than the guys who are still lying in their beds after a big night out? Or those who are washing their cars? Or those who are stopping off at the garage for a copy of the Sunday Life? What if we think we're better? As I was looking at our passage today, I think it it undermines any sense that we might have of superiority. It, I think, takes away any reason for a follower of Jesus Christ to think they're superior because there's no hero in this story, only one, and it's not us. We're going to be looking this morning at uh, the passage which Steph read for us, but actually right through till verse uh, 27, two incidents. So Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and also Peter's denial of him in the high priest's house. The more observant among you, by the way, will have noticed that from last week to this, we have jumped from chapter 12, which David was looking at with you then, right over to chapter 18. Uh, by the way, if you didn't notice that, just go back to sleep and, and don't let me disturb you, you know, just let it, let it happen. Um, but we jumped from chapter 12 right over to chapter 18. There's a reason for that. Um, chapters 13 to 17 deal with a, a real standalone moment in John's gospel. They tell of what happened when Jesus spent an evening in an upper room with his disciples tells of that event and it tells of the conversation. So five chapters dealing only with that two or three hours of, of Jesus' life. I'm skipping over that section for a couple of reasons. One is just to keep a, a, a sort of a, a forward momentum as we trace the narrative of John's gospel and also because I want us to arrive at the Easter narratives uh, just in time for Easter. But I don't want you to to miss out on these chapters because actually they have a a very profound role in scripture. It's the longest conversation of Jesus with his disciples that's recorded for us. This is Jesus sitting in a room around the table with his disciples. So if we're serious about following Jesus, uh, we'll probably want to listen in to this conversation at some point. There's a couple of ways you could do that. One is to take 20 minutes and read it sometime. Um, and maybe reread it a few times over Lent. If you're keen to hear some teaching on these chapters, I actually taught these as a standalone series uh, back in 2006. And if you want to look them up on the, the church's website, the sermon section of that, you'll find nine sermons there um, entitled Jesus and His Friends in the John's Gospel section. So either way, try to get a look at that material. But before Without delaying any further, let's, let's look at today's passage. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice Jesus' disciples and Jesus. It's a pretty simple uh, structure. When I read this uh, part of John's gospel and reflected on what it shows us about his disciples, I couldn't help but wish for a better story. It's, it's not great. Look what happens here. Judas betrays Jesus. 
Peter tries to defend him, resorts to violence, and, and mucks it up. John doesn't tell us what the other gospel writers do, but that's the other disciples all run away. And then Peter tries to stick with Jesus, but uh, when the pressure's on in that next section, we read about him denying Jesus three times. As I said, would wish for a better story. If, if we were writing the script, or if we were making a movie of Jesus and his disciples, we'd love to have the disciples cast as heroes who were in a circle around Jesus in the garden, swords drawn, defending him against the Roman forces, or of them heroically battling their way into Jerusalem and and standing on the the steps of the temple, uh, guarding him to the last man. And, And by the way, that's what you would have expected of a Messiah in these times. There were loads of stories in the recent history of Israel of would-be messiahs who, with their followers, would fight heroically against the the Roman forces and would go to glorious deaths, glorious deaths, fighting for God and for their country. That's the kind of story we'd love to have read, but, but we don't. If there are heroes out there, they're not among Jesus' followers. They don't stack up. No heroes here. In the end, pardon me, while we'd wish for a better story regarding the first disciples of Jesus, I can't help but feel that in the end what we get is an honest story, an authentic story, because we recognize this is our story. Uh, we too are the kind of people who, who betray Jesus, who, who trade in the deep values of Jesus whenever something else uh, seems to, to offer us more gain. We run away from him when the pressure's on. Um, we don't like to become associated with him when it's costly or dangerous to do so. And sometimes we just deny him. We act as though we don't, don't even really know him. And when you read a part of scripture like this, it, it makes us wonder, why would Christians ever feel smug? Back to where we started. Where does this sense of moral superiority come from? Why would we ever imagine that we are good and that God's lucky to have us? And yet that's precisely what we do. We think of our giving and of our serving. We even pride ourselves in in coming to church and supporting church and, and keeping it going and helping God out. We'd never articulate it, but we in our heart of hearts, act as though God's lucky to have us. These couple of scenes taken from Jesus' last hours with his disciples, I think are are quite powerful at disabusing us of the notion of our own worthiness, that we're some sort of superior people. We're no heroes. There's only one hero in this story, and we want to look for a couple of moments now at his courage and his beauty. When the soldiers come to Jesus in the passage which Steph read, he goes out to them and he asks them, who is it you want? Whenever they they say it's Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. And as you may know, the words I am in the 
the, the Hebrew world are, are a very special name for God. And as he says, I am, something seems to happen. Something of God's divine power in Jesus becomes evident. And these guys fall back and actually fall to the ground. They're, they're terrified, John tells us. But that's not what Jesus is about here. He's not here to dazzle these guys. He's not here to get off the hook and escape them. He asks them a second time who they want. And when they say again, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. If you're looking for me, let them go. Now we're beginning to understand why Jesus wants to make sure that there's no mistaken identity here. He wants to be sure that he is the one who's arrested. He wants to be sure that his disciples are allowed to go free. He seems intent on his suffering and dying to ensure that these others are saved. John reminds us in verse 9 of something Jesus had said in a previous occasion. I've not lost one of those you gave me. He's the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. Those other messiahs may have taken dozens and hundreds of their followers to an early grave. Not Jesus Christ. It's impressive enough, I think, that Jesus is so intent on giving himself and protecting his followers. But there's more. Look, look back at verse 4. Earlier in his account of the arrest of Jesus, when he's describing this party uh, coming to arrest him, John gives us a very telling editorial comment. He gives us an insight into how much Jesus knew about what was going on here. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Have you ever understood that? Jesus knew everything that was coming. He knew that he'd be taken and that shortly he'd be in the high priest's house, that he'd be abused there and that he'd suffer unfair trial. He knew that Peter, this dear friend of his, spokesman of all the disciples, would three times say, I don't know him. I don't know him. No, I don't know him. He knew that he'd be dragged before Pilate and that Pilate, simply because he lacked backbone, would set free a a murderer and ensure that Jesus was sentenced to death. Jesus knew that they would flog him. He knew that they would press a crown of long thorns into his skull. He knew that they would dress him as a king and mock him and ridicule him. He knew that they'd flog him to within an inch of his life. And he knew at this point, before he went out to them, that before the day was out, he'd be nailed to a Roman cross like a common criminal. John tells us that Jesus knew all this. And still he went out to the mob sent to arrest him. And still he gives himself up to them. Do you see the implications of this, folks? Gethsemane is not an accident. 
Nothing went wrong here. Jesus' plan didn't fall apart. Jesus is orchestrating every event here to get him to the place where he wants to go. Do you know why Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, John tells us. John tells us that it's a place where habitually he and his disciples went. Jesus goes there so that Judas has no bother finding him. He goes to the most obvious place to make sure that the events of this night play out like this. Jesus wanted to be arrested that night. He was planning to give his life and he chose the cross. We began this morning by thinking briefly about a smugness or a moral superiority that's sometimes evident in Christian people. It shouldn't ever be evident among people who understand this story, the story of the gospel. People who know this story and who've made it this, their story know that we have nothing to feel superior about. Our Savior came into a world to die for people who betrayed him, people who left him in the lurch and ran from him, people who didn't even admit that they knew him. And even this week, we have all heard the cock crow in our own lives. And we know it's true of us. We're failing him. Time and again, there are no heroes in this story. There's nobody, nobody in this gathering with any grounds for any feelings of smugness or moral superiority. Folks, if that's the bad news, then here is the good. Since nobody is good enough to merit Jesus dying for them, and since he still chose to go to the cross, there's nobody good enough But there's nobody not good enough. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good we think we are or how bad we think we are. We all need him to choose to go to that cross in our place. If Jesus went to the cross for those disciples, we can be sure that he's gone for us too. I need you to hear me say this. There's nobody in this gathering this morning who's beyond the reach of the long arms of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I say that knowing the kinds of things that we might be caught up in here today. If you're doing shoddy work that you're embarrassed of, you're not not beyond the reach of his grace. If your parenting is a source of great pain to you and to your children, you're not beyond him. 
If you're cheating in your marriage, his grace can reach you there. If you're fiddling your taxes, if you're addicted to pornography, if you're using any sort of drug to prop you up to get through life, His grace can reach you there. In the moment where Jesus Christ saw his disciples at his worst, he chose to go to the cross to die for them. Where did we ever get this idea of moral superiority from? Not from the gospel story, that's for sure. We'll not find any encouragement for that way of thinking. Not when we turn to God's word. Not, not in those passages we've just read. Not anywhere else in the New Testament either. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And as, a, as an old man, when Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy, in his second letter to him, as an old man who's probably seen his fair share of the failings in his own life and in the lives of others, Paul says this, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Smug Christians. Feelings of moral superiority. It's laughable, isn't it? When we pay any attention at all to, to what God's shown us in his words, in his word. We've absolutely no grounds for placing any confidence in our own merits, our own strength. But we've seen today that with every ground to trust in him who gave himself for us while we were in the act of betraying him, he chose the cross so that we could go free. Jesus Christ, not our morality, is our only hope. Let's pray. Father God, in gatherings like this, when more and more of us join in and take part, it's easy for us to imagine that we're getting something right, that there's something good here, and, and that there's something good in us that we're sharing among each other. Lord, your words taken the ground from underneath our feet this morning. We've seen the huge contrast between our faithlessness 
and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to take your word to heart. Help us to be undone. So that we might open our hands and receive from you your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And the new life that you want to give us. Lord, draw us all into a lives built on a totally new foundation. Not our own strength, our own moral superiority. Lord, we pray that you'd build us lives on the foundation that's the righteousness of Jesus. To say that it's nothing of us, but that it's everything of him. Lord, thank you that Jesus died so that we might live. Amen.